Father, for a moment, let us all simply bathe in the glory of your beauty. You are here. You are with us. Father, we pray that our hearts, our mind's eye, and the life of our spirit would feel your touch and your presence. Father, we pray that the things that we learn of you today would bring us closer to you. We ask these things with grateful hearts through Christ our Lord. Amen. Please uh, be seated. For those of you who may not uh, know it, I... I enjoy woodworking. I, I, I tend to make pens. I made this pen. I tend to keep the ones, all the good ones I either give away or somehow they, 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 they leave. And so I keep the ones that are a little bit broken, uh, the ones that aren't quite perfect. And I do that as a reminder of, of who I am before Christ and how that he makes all things Beautiful, and he is uh, wondrous in changing our lives. Specifically, the kind of woodworking that I enjoy uh, is uh, turning wood on a lathe. Now, many of us may not be familiar with that, but, but from antiquity up to just very recently, everyone knew a craftsman who was able to turn wood into something that was finely crafted and, and beautiful and, and practical. And it's so common in our language and in many languages that as early as uh, 1693, much earlier than that is a metaphor, but uh, John Dryden put it into prose when he compared wood turning to turning words. And he said this, had I time, I could enlarge on the beautiful turns of words and thoughts, which are as requisite in this as in heroic poetry. Benjamin Franklin was the first one who used uh, the phrase that we use today, the very precise expression, a turn of phrase. And, and again, so common was that, the people all understood it. It, it came to mean that which once was was crooked uh, or or broken or worn or weathered was turned by a master craftsman and then became usable and beautiful and desirable. Thus, the expression that we have, he turned the corner or everything will turn out all right. And what interested me this morning, I mentioned before, is Franklin's phrase, a turn of phrase. So a turn of phrase means a style of speaking or writing that implies creativity and sophistication and beauty of expression. And so it's analogous, right, to a beautifully turned piece of wood turned on a lathe. In fact, our English word turn is not actually a word in English at all. It's a transliteration from the Greek. Turnus, which actually means lathe. So now you've learned a new Greek word today. So what is it that started me on this reflection about 
words and lathes and and turns of, of phrases. Simply this, it was the Lord's own words in Luke 6.31. Because he turned a phrase, and in that he he seized and he riveted the people's attention to his words. So turn there with me. It's in the middle of our text today, but that's only appropriate because it is, in fact, the heart of the text. In Luke 6, 31, where we read, And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Now, it's variously repeated in the New Testament, but we know this as the golden rule, do unto others as you would have done unto you. However, that's not what the phrase was in New Testament times, nor was it the phrase in Old Testament times, nor the peoples that in the Old Testament they considered ancient. In antiquity, that's never the way it was stated. The way it was stated, according to the great Hillel, the teaching in Israel at the time was this, what is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. That is the whole Torah, he says, and the rest is only commentary. Did you catch the difference? Differences, actually. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but I do want to point out a couple. First, the original is stated negatively. That is, Something that you are not to do. Do not do this. The Jews concluded, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, that that command not to hate your neighbor was the same command that allowed you to hate your enemy. And of course, we know that Jesus says this is not true. Secondly, it wasn't, in, it wasn't at all affirmative in doing good. It was only affirmative in not doing evil. And yet Jesus opens this passage, as we'll see in just a moment, love your enemies. Once we understand that love reigns and not hate, we will fully appreciate the need for Christ's love in our own hearts, which in its verbal form, which is so important, is what evidences true righteousness. That is, Love defined by actions, not simply or merely by feelings. This is important because Jesus wants us to love the unlovely as well as those who appeal to us. And in fact, in loving the unlovely, the unappealing to us, that is where true righteousness is actually revealed. It was and is not sufficient for the believer to abstain from acts. No, they must be active in well-doing. I mean, in Matthew uh, 7, 12, Jesus said it this way, Do unto others as you would have done unto you, for this is the law and the prophets. Just two chapters earlier in Matthew 5, he said this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
I mean, when you put the two passages together, you see something that's fascinating. You see, number one, that if you obey the golden rule, you, you that's all the law and prophets. Everything else, as Hillel says, is commentary. And essentially, Jesus is agreeing with that. And then secondly, we find out that the fulfillment of the law and the prophets is none other than Jesus himself. There are many Many people who aspire to live by the golden rule. Uh, People who are not religious at all. They just think that this is a good thing for them to do. However, they don't get it. And I'm convinced that many of us don't get it either. Because the fundamental truth was not, nor even one of the primary meanings was not of the golden rule behavior. It wasn't. You may ask, well, that's what it says. It says do. I mean, that's that's behavior. We see it right there. No, in fact, it is the first three chapters of Romans summed up. The golden rule leads you down only one road, and one road only. You can't do it. I cannot do it. None of us has ever abided by, nor ever will abide by, in its entirety, the golden rule. Not in our hearts. It's not in our natures. And you know what? You don't have to miss that a hundred times. You don't have to miss that a thousand times as it relates to our relationship with Jesus Christ only once. You see... Any attempt to live by the golden rule takes you at a place. If you're a reflective person at all, you know this to be true. I, I can't do it. I need outside help. I need a savior. The, the, the burden upon our moral framework without Christ is simply too great. It's only in Christ as the fulfillment of the law and the prophets are we able to fulfill the law and the prophets by living a life that's worthy of Christ because it's only through him. So let's look at this a little bit more, expand it in Luke chapter 6. We won't be, uh, we'll be ending at verse 38. So I'll read Luke 6, 27 through 38. But I say to you who hear, this isn't for everybody. Not everybody is listening. Not everybody cares to listen. This is for the people who are spiritually in tune. I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from you who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, What benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? 
For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So verses 27 through 38 here, Jesus offers us a couple of things. First, he offers seven characteristics uh, that are of unconditional love, that are demonstrations of how we love others, how he wants us to love others. And secondly, it's followed by a teaching on essentially sowing and reaping. What you sow is what you reap. None of these actions are are part of our nature, part of our makeup. They all require divine enablement. So what are they? First, and you can see these right in the text as we go along, love your enemies. Second, do good to those who hate you. Third, bless those who curse you. Fourth, pray for those who mistreat you. Fifth, do not retaliate. Sixth, give freely. Seventh, treat others the way you want to be treated. Again, verse 31, And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. This is followed then by examples of the sowing and reaping, which is mercy leads to mercy, judgment leads to judgment, condemnation to condemnation, pardon leads to pardon, and giving leads to giving. So first, even though we spent considerable time on it a couple of weeks ago in Matthew about love, we need to make a few more remarks because that kind of love marks us. Why? Because verse 35 tells us that it's in this way that we exhibit the very characteristics of God, our Heavenly Father. Jesus is making a point, several When you love as God loves, you love those who don't like you. You love those who hurt you. You love those who take advantage of you. Anybody feeling the rub of the golden rule yet? (laughs) I'm not inclined to that. I'm not inclined to that at all. The Apostle Paul, though, gives us a little more uh, it fills it out a little bit more in 1 Corinthians 13 as to how we actually do this and what the nature of love is when he says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all 
things. In short, it's do unto others as you would have done unto you. Leviticus 19.18 elaborates on this, or actually Paul and Jesus were both referring back to Leviticus 19.18 when it reads this, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So clearly here and in Leviticus, we're talking about the same thing, loving your neighbor. But the redefinition, the turn of phrase that Jesus gives to it is essentially, who is your neighbor? It's everyone. It's everyone. It's not the person who lives next door. It's not the person you're seated next to. It's not the people simply in our congregation. It's everyone out there. And it it, it ends in a very interesting way. That Leviticus 19 passage. He says that and then he says this. I am the Lord. Well how many times the the scripture verses end with I am the Lord. We find it here. We certainly do. And I believe what's happening is that God is reminding us. Is that he is the Lord. Not us. Uh, I think it was Covey. But I'm I'm not sure if if somebody knows. Just let me know. Uh, afterwards, but the quote uh, is is the quote, regardless of who said it, is, I'm not God, and I'm not applying for the position. So in the context of verse 31 of 1 Corinthians 13 of Leviticus 19, that it specifically eliminates two things from our consideration. Number one is revenge, and number two is grudge holding. And the Lord ends that text with, I am the Lord, and the reason he does so is that both revenge and grudge holding require something that requires you to be the prosecutor, requires you to be the judge, it requires you to be the jury, It requires you to be the executioner and no human being has the right or the authority to be that over anyone. Romans 12, 19 says this. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to revenge. I will repay, says the Lord. So what's the downside of seeking revenge or holding a grudge? I can, I can list off a whole bunch of them right now. You probably can too. But number one, I will never be the loving husband that my wife needs if I'm holding a grudge against her. I will never be the kind of parent that my children need If I am holding a grudge against them. Why? Because grudges and vengeance puts a separation, a distance, so that you cannot be authentic with them. You cannot love them in the way that Jesus wants you to. I will never be a worker, even in his work on this earth, if I hold a grudge against a fellow believer against an elder, against another leader in the church, or any one of my brothers or sisters in Christ. 
It puts a barrier. It puts a wall. And that's the essence, I believe, of what Paul meant when he said love is not resentful. I love those two words. It's not irritable. It's not irritable. It's not resentful. Put another way, I believe he is telling us to keep short accounts. You know, one of the most damaging things that I see in relationships, in relationships personally and even in the larger sense in the church and even beyond at work and so forth, is that we keep accounts. We keep accounts and when the time is right, boy, we slip one of those out as a weapon and we stick the other person with it. God says, don't do that. God says that should not be a part of how you deal with people. When you have a list of accounts against others, he's saying, get rid of it. Take care of it. Move it out of the way, because I can assure you, and I would think that God would say this as well, even though we don't find it in Scripture. Whatever that person did to harm you cannot even be compared to the harm that God suffered when they crucified Christ on the cross, and God himself will not hold them to that. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. His forgiveness is broad, and it's wide. Yeah, there's a risk, lots of risks, actually, one, your risk of being wronged is, is, is greater. And yet this, that's exactly how Jesus Christ loves us, only to an extent that we can't understand. When I reflect on the beauty of Jesus Christ, I am not thinking about his appearance. Although I can't even imagine how magnificent that will be. I am thinking about who he is and what he has done for me, what he has done for you, he willingly gave his life on a cross for the benefit of all mankind, knowing beforehand, knowing beforehand that the majority of people would not believe. The majority of people would reject him, but he did it just the same. And this is what he commands us to do as well. I mean, think about your relationships. If you've been harboring a, a grudge that's causing you to withhold love from someone, let it go. Give it to God. God will take care of it, either now or in the time to come. It's not our business we are not the ones to prosecute this. God is. And even those who are truly unlovely in our lives, God will help us love them in prudent and practical ways. And the only thing or way that I can do the things that Jesus Christ commanded me to do is to trust that he's got it. He is in control. What did that Leviticus 19? I am the Lord. You're not in control. I'm not in control. God is saying, I got this. I, I, I have this. He has our best interests at heart when he 
tells us to act in a manner that's completely contrary to what we might think so that we can do our best to love that which is unlovely. Jesus is going to make it right in the end, and he asks us to do the same thing. Let's look at a few of the things that he asks us to do, right? Turning the other cheek. What does that mean? It means to go, I I think it means to go out of your way to avoid a a nasty, unnecessary confrontation. Even though you're provoked, even though you might be laughed at, uh, you you turn the other cheek. The word literally isn't cheek. It's, It's actually jaw. He's not... You know, so it's it's a difficult it's a difficult thing. You know, it's hard to love when somebody has hit you. <laughs> uh, what we want to do is we want to wound our opponent. So somebody hits us, we become angry. And with that anger comes a desire to strike back, not just to defend. Oh no 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 no, but to wound to do to do harm, to get an advantage, or verbally to have the last word. The second little commandment that he gives here is even more difficult to understand. If someone takes your cloak, eh, let him have your tunic too, or if he wants it, give it to him. The principle is the same, though. When, you're, when your enemy takes your cloak, you know, you're to remember that you are to love him. Pray for him, bless him, seek his good. Those are the words that are used in the text. Jesus' words, understand too, I made this caveat before, I need to make it again, because this is so radical, right? Jesus is not talking about crime or pacifism or or war. He's talking about our interpersonal relationships with one another. That would include enemies as well. It, so uh, it's 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 very it's very broad, but it's also very narrow. It's very close uh, to us. What he's saying, in essence, is that possessions are less important than people. I mean, we should know that. We sh- we should know that automatically, but we don't, and we tend to treat people like things rather than people. We treat. We should treat them the way that we want to be treated, not the way we deserve to be treated or the way they deserve to be treated. You know what would happen this, if this radical love that the Father had didn't have for us? If he treated us according to what we deserved, we would all be doomed. There would be no hope. But he's shown us grace and he expects us to be disciples to dispense that kind of grace to others. I I, want to repeat this um, again. We don't want to take these statements out of, you know, out of context, because if we literally did all of this, uh, we gave to anyone and everyone who begged from us and let them take all of our possessions, whatever they may be, or, you know, made loans to people with people wouldn't uh, repay or strike us, let them, you know, hit us twice. Again, we'd all be toothless, naked, and broke. And uh, all the lazy folks would be, uh, you know, well cared for. So please understand there's, there's more at play than, than, uh, than what you, you read directly on the surface, although that's true. The, reminder, uh, the remainder of the, the text here, he's telling us, what we, 
uh, ha- sowing and reaping. Mercy leads to mercy in verse 36. Judgment leads to judgment in the first part of verse 37. Condemnation leads to condemnation. Pardon to pardon, giving to, to giving. The overriding point here uh, that is that Christ is telling us that we must exceed the self-awareness of doing good uh, of the unbelievers who are doing good, put it that way. In other words, everybody does this to the people that they care about. Everybody. We're to go beyond that. If you love those who love you, what credit is to you? Even sinners do the same. And he goes on, even, even lending. He talks about that. We are to learn mercy from God's example. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, because He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. So Jesus gives us essentially three commands as elements, and it's, it's kind of pass-fail. Love your enemies, do good to them, and give without expecting to get anything back. So what was he talking about specifically? Well, I believe what he was talking about, that there was a nasty little fact in the first century that actually carried up uh, even into this country and is uh, common in some areas around the world today, and that's debtor's prison. So now to us, debtor's prison makes no sense at all, right? How do you pay a debt when you're in prison and you have no ability to gain any income so that you can pay the debt? Well, let me, there's, there's two small examples that I'll, that I'll give from our time over in Jordan. One was prison. If you went to prison in Jordan and you were there, Uh, They did not feed you. They did not clothe you. What they did was they kept you behind bars. However, they allowed the families to come and give you food. The families to come and give you clothing. And this is the same as true in the hospital. If you go to the hospital, at least when we lived there, uh, they didn't feed you. They wouldn't even change your sheets. If you wanted care other than getting stuck with a needle, uh, your family had to do it. So when somebody was thrown into debtor's prison, they had no ability to pay, none whatsoever. So the family would have to gather together the resources in order to pay the debt so that the person would be free. We see this all over the New Testament about the debtor's prison and so forth. So the family is there. And this is a wonderful test for Jesus' disciples. It's an opportunity to deal positively in a loving way with a miserable, insolent unbeliever. Right? Not a family member, but someone else purely out of love with no Hope for reward. That is what Jesus says is real mercy. That comes closer to the Father's mercy 
than any kind of repayment that the father can expect from who? I want you to see this picture that we were, or perhaps some are, in debtor's prison. And there's no one, no family member, there's no one here who can pay the price and we cannot pay it, even were we to give our lives. It would not be enough. And so Jesus Christ came and he shed his precious blood so that we could be taken out of that condition. Mercy to those who have no means of repayment. That's Jesus' death for our sins on the cross. I want to think about that for a moment. Verse 31, do unto others as you would have done unto you. The loving cost that Christ paid in our behalf. On August the 16th, 1987, Northwest Airlines, flight 225, it, it crashed just after taking off from Detroit Airport. Killed all the crew members, killed all 155 people aboard the plane, except for there was a 156th person. One survived, a four-year-old girl from Tempe, Arizona, and her name was Cecilia. News accounts uh, that came out immediately after said that all the rescue workers, all the first responders, when they found this four-year-old girl, they knew she wasn't from the plane. She was from one of the cars that the plane hit. And so they, they treated her as such, but what happened was they, as a matter of the course of investigation, they looked at the passenger list, and sure enough, she was on that, she was on that plane, the only, the only survivor. How did she survive? Well, there's no film. No one can know exactly, but investigators, based on the wound pattern and their forensic understanding of how things work only surmised one thing, that when the plane began to fall out of the sky, her mother unbuckled her seatbelt and threw herself in front of Cecilia to cushion the fall, to cushion the crash. Nothing could separate Cecilia from her mother's love. You see, that's tough love. We like to put it in other ways, but no, tough love is, is a giving love. It's a sacrificial love. Not an airplane crash, not a tragedy, not a disaster, not a fall from the sky or the flames that ensued could keep that mother from protecting her child. There were probably others who did similar things, but in this case, the child lived. And like that child, we've all been trapped by our own sin, spiraling down to an inevitable doom. But God loved us so much that 
he sent his son from heaven to come down to our level to cover our sin with the sacrifice of his own body that we might be saved from the fall. Romans tells us, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus himself, we're told in Peter, bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. And then Paul tells us that Jesus gave his life for us so that we can live together with him. O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. By all accounts, Cecilia's life has turned out well. Father, we're so deeply grateful for who you are. And Lord, that that, that your sacrifice that gave us life took your life. In fact, that was what had to happen. That was the price. That was the only way that we could be freed from our bondage to sin. We thank you for that. We stand amazed in your presence. We reflect on your beauty, who you are, and what you have done in our behalf. Thank you, Lord. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.